you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the, world. in the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. The CEOs, authors, thought leaders, visionaries, and motivators. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times. Because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. It's Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. There you go. Welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. We certainly appreciate you guys being here. As always, the Chris Voss Show is the family that loves you but doesn't judge you, at least as harshly as your mother-in-law. And that's why you love us, because we love you in spite of all your flaws and, and issues and, and you know, some of you in the back, they, yeah, I've seen a lot of your issues. <laughs> I'm just teasing. We love everybody. As always, refer the show to your family, friends, or relatives. Help spread the word and the love and the knowledge of helping people improve the quality of their lives. The Chris Voss Show and the great authors and minds we have on the show, none of which are me. I'm just the idiot with the mic. Go to goodreads.com for chess Chris Voss, LinkedIn.com for chess Chris Voss, the link, big LinkedIn newsletter, the 130,000 LinkedIn group over there as well. Chris Voss, Facebook, and Chris Voss one on the TikTok. For 15 years, we bring in the CEOs, the billionaires, the White House presidential advisors, the Pulitzer Prize winners, all the people who bring their amazing stories that you can help learn in life, or at least they're fun and educating as well. Today, we have an amazing author on the show. We'll be talking about his latest book that just came out, November 7th, 2023. It is called Pirate Cove, an insider's account of the infamous Southport Lane scandal. Richard D. Bailey joins us on the show today. He'll be talking to us about this amazing story that he uncovered and uh, take you through the all the sorts of different things that go on with, we'll just get into the book and then he'll be able to tell you. I'll keep you in suspense. How about that? He is the author of Pirate Cove, released by Bancroft, Ban- Ban- if I can learn how to spell today. Bancroft Press in November 2023. For 30 years, he's been providing interim and long-term management and corporate development services to distressed public and private manufacturing service and distribution companies. In 2013, he was hired by Southport Lane Management, New York-based private equity firm. Shortly after he was hired, he noticed unusual cash transfers by and between Southport-owned controlled LLCs. Upon further investigation, he uncovered critical evidence of what would turn out to be $350 million in fraud. Will they take a check? He then closely worked with FBI investigators for several years, resulted in four indictments and four guilty pleas. Three of the perpetrators served prison time in late October 2021. The leader of the fraud committed suicide prior to being sentenced. As a result, with millions unaccounted for in the eyes of the law, he died an innocent man. His book, Pirate Cove, is a true story of a fake Caravaggio? A book fake Caravaggio, yep. Caravaggio. I just learned a new word today. This is why we do the show. A bonus Yale degree, a 26-year-old self-proclaimed genius in the unraveling of $350 million in fraud. He holds a BA from Providence College and an MA from Fairfield University. Welcome to the show, Richard. How are you? I'm well, Chris. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for coming. Boy, we've laid out a we've laid out a whole show here of interesting, fun, and and in, this seem this sounds like FTX Junior going on over here with what you guys had going on. So, give us dot coms. Where do you want people to find you on the interwebs? First of all, you can find me on rdbailey b a i l e y dot com. My Twitter handle is underscore r is rdb lowercase underscore. 
There you like, go. Yeah, under, uh, underscore Bailey. I'm sorry. I forgot about it. <laughs> we have to have the dot com part. Otherwise, you know. It could be I know. I know. It's Twitter. You know. It's, oh, that's it's, true. Uh, huh? it's, it, it's, it's RDB underscore RD Bailey. So. There you go. There you go. Give us a 30,000 overview. We kind of led into it, but people want to hear it from your voice. What's, tell us a little bit about the inside of this book. Okay. You know, I was once told, I read once somewhere, that uh, the crux of a good story is you throw an ordinary schmuck, which would be me in this case, into an extraordinary circumstance and see what happens. My life in this podcast. <laughs> you know, in 2013, I was hired by a private equity firm uh, named Southport Lane, as you mentioned. And they first sent me to a pharmaceutical company in northern New Jersey to do some due diligence on an investment they were going to make. I came back and they basically, they were not very good at private equity investing. And I came back and the 26-year-old prodigy said, you know, should I buy this company? And I said, no. And he just looked at me strangely. And I said, he goes, why? I said, because you're going to lose all your money. <laughs> you know, just, you know. So they hired me to run this very struggling, financially insecure vineyard out on Long Island called Lieb Cellars that mm. they had that was worth about $5.7 million and they paid $12.75 million cash. So I got back to the point, these guys weren't very good at this. <laughs> I, I start running the company. I start noticing that there is you know cash transfers that make no sense, large sums of money coming in, going out. And it's like, okay, now what do I do? And ultimately, I went and figured the whole fraud out. And then to jump to the middle of the end, I went to the FBI. I wound up with the FBI. That was a circuitous route as well. Mm -hmm. And I wore a wire and stuck cameras into meetings. And uh, everything, you know, they, everybody got arrested except me, thank God. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the companies went away. This is crazy, man. This is a crazy It's story. true. It was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, too. There you go. People can Google it and pull it up. We're going to delve into the book. Let's get a little bit on you and your background. People like to know who you are and get sold on you too as well. Tell us how you, you know, what were some of your journeys that got you down this road, got you into this situation? I, you know, I did work what's called workouts and turnarounds for about 30 plus years. Mm -hmm. Now, no one grows up wanting to do workouts and turnarounds in corporate. I mean, it just... <laughs> It just doesn't happen that way, you know, and you don't, and you don't do it until you realize that you're in one. I got a job at the end of the eighties at a steel mill out in Western Pennsylvania. It was a classic eighties LBO. It was worth 6 million. They paid 8 million, borrowed 10 million. And in 1991, it was in bankruptcy. Oh, wow. And you know, that was, you know, and you know, that was kind of fun for me because I liked the pace of the bankruptcy and, you know, trying to figure out, you know, and trying to make people happy try to you know sit there and do deals and things like that in order to sit there and just get yourself to payroll this next mm -hmm. Friday. So I spent a lot of years doing stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So when I was contacted by Southport Lane, you know, the guy, the, the, the president of Southport Lane, who was not involved in any of the criminal activity, was a close friend of mine for about 20 years. And he said, you know, this vineyard's a mess. And I was like, okay. And, you know, I said, that doesn't scare me. I said, but, you know, I don't know how, I don't know anything about farming and, you know, wine and agriculture and things like that. And, you know, he was like, if you want to get paid, you do now, you know. <laughs> so, no, I literally spent a lot of years just, you know, fixing other people's problems, corporate problems. There you know, you sometimes that means, you know, putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. 
sometimes you can do it and you can make a lot of money doing it. Sometimes, you know, you find a company that just doesn't deserve to live and you perform the last rites, bust it up and, you know, sell off everything and, and just let it go its own you know, way. Hopefully. So that's what, that, that's, that's what it is. You know, there's a lot of people that make an awful lot of money doing it for the big yeah, companies, cutting it up, and putting it. Oh pieces, yeah. Oh yeah. The pieces. Oh, and stuff. oh yeah. You know, you know, you should probably hit up next is that Sports Illustrated. Evidently, the <laughs> it's kind of funny. <laughs> I know they just they just laid everybody off. Yeah, I mean that's pretty. Uh, yeah. that, that's, I guess that's. I guess the name of Sports Illustrated is owned by two two firms. Um. That, that owned it and whoever's running sports illustrator leasing the name didn't make their payment so the the two firms said yeah we'll take that right back from you and then once you take the name sports illustrated back it's kind of like you know you got nothing at that nothing. point yeah. I mean, you could probably you know borrow the kmart name but that probably doesn't work for, <laughs> for your brand for kodak you know for something kodak, like that yeah. there you go at least that's second i think everyone leases kodak my, my dogs lease the kodak name i've seen that slapped on so many different things let's delve back into the book as we go is this the first book you've ever written it is it is there you, go. Uh, you know my my 95 year old mother I, after all was said and done in 2018 she was you know probably 90 she was 90 at the time I, I sat down and told her the story and she was a, you know, an old school teacher and she looks at me and she just says, write it down. This is a great yeah. story. So I yeah. did, I, I started writing like one chapter a week and you know, it was kind of difficult because not that the writing part wasn't difficult, but you know, I didn't really have an overarching, like, you know, there was no ending to the story at this point, you know, I, mm -hmm. I, and so I was, writing it down. So I decided to do it on Substack. So I serialized it on Substack. So oh, I would wow. sit there and send out one chapter a week. Mm -hmm. And next thing you know, you know, people start finding it, subscribing. You know, I built up a little following on Substack. And when I took a couple weeks off, and this would have been in 2020, I took mm -hmm. a couple weeks off writing it. And the, <laughs> and people started calling me and emailing me saying, what happened? I want to read the next chapter. So that kind of spurred me into doing it. what I couldn't tell them at the time is I was negotiating with the FBI on certain things that I can could say and couldn't say because I did some undercover work for them, obviously. You know, I it was I, I did that and finally in October of twenty twenty one, I was literally driving home from Home Depot because we had lost power here where I live in south of Boston. And I was buying I bought some some wood for our, our wood stove and the phone rings and it's the lead agent for the FBI who, you know, when you work for the FBI in a, in a situation like this, you actually get very, very close with that person, you know, mm -hmm. because you, they sit there and they walk you through some difficult times, you know, why am I doing this? How can I do this? You know, what happens if, you know, these people find out. And so he called me and he just said, Hey, I just want to give you, give you a heads up. And I said, okay, but what, you know, and first of all, this guy never called me directly, you know, for three and a half years, you know, you know, undercover activity, everything yeah. started with a text first, you know, you, you, know, you got meet time us, for a call. Meet yeah. us here or something like that. Yeah, yeah that's exactly what happened. Yeah. And so I sit there and I, you know, the phone just rings and it's his name and I go, okay, what's going on? And he goes, Alex Burns just killed himself. Now he was the 26, wow. he was the 26 year old mastermind of this $350 million fraud. And I, my, my, you know, response was, you know, typically profane. But then, you know, I sat there and said, okay, that's kind of the end of this story. And he said, yep. And even the FBI agent said, you can finish the book now. You have an ending. Oh, you, you have an ending. <laughs> wow. 
So that's one way. That's one way you get an ending. There yeah, wasn't. I didn't see that one coming. Put it that way. There you go. Wall Street Journal covered this: the collapse of Southport Lane's insurance empire. So, uh, tell us about this young man. Is he is he the the key figure in this? Where he's yeah yeah he's, he is. Is, it, is it is was my comparison to like a G FTX Junior sort of the same sort of proponents that were going on here? It was where this money was disappearing too. It, it was phenomenally close because there seemed to be very similar personalities. Oh, right. Alex Alex was very very smart no doubt about it, but mm -hmm. he wasn't smart enough to kind of connect the dots on all his crazy ideas and sit there and, you know, and if it was his idea, it was therefore a brilliant idea because oh. of course he, he was brilliant and, and he would be the first person to tell you that on many, <laughs> on, on, a, on a number of occasions, he said, you know, I am Richard. I am always the smartest person in the room. Really? Wow. You know, You're saying he, that. That's a he just got, yeah. You just got to be kind of, you know, stupid to say that something like that you know he he was very similar in what i was reading about sam bankman freed you know they were very yeah. good about going out and basically you know convincing people that they were you know financial prodigies that mm -hmm. they understood things a new way of doing things that nobody else did because it had never been done before and therefore prying money out of a lot of people in, in alex's case he bought four insurance companies, and at one point, he was bragging of having over $5 billion in money to invest. Wow. At 26. Wow. There you go. Note to self, quit saying I'm the smartest pe person in the room. Yeah. Uh, and so he raises a fund, I guess, from investors to raise the no, money he, to buy these things? No, he didn't. The, here's, the, oh. here's the interesting thing. They just took a different path altogether. <laughs> they found some insurance companies that mm. you know were not in best financial health, and they convinced the insurance regulators and the insurance company's owners, equity holders, to sell the companies to them. Oh wow. So how do they pay for the how do they buy the insurance companies? They literally printed stock certificates in their office. All right. <laughs> they they created I'm not this is this is noble. They it created they created another company, all right, with different names and things like that, which would put Give an opinion as to the value of the securities they just created on their office printer, uh -huh. and then they would, and then they sent those certificates into a very large bank here in the United States. That bank signed off and said, "Yep, that's fifty million dollars," based wow. upon, and they used that that money, that fifty million. They put that on the balance sheet of the company, so that was the purchase price. And then what happens is, you know, you've got. And here is the real reason they did all this. You know, you get into an insurance company, you've been a distressed insurance company, and they're going to have an awful lot of cash that just cycles through on a monthly basis because, you know, people pay their premiums, they pay out, you know, the claims, and it's just a huge, it just rains money in those businesses. You know, they had the extra, so they created another set of securities, of, fo of bogus securities, and sold those and sold those to the insurance company they owned. Holy shit. And sat there and took that money out. And that's how they bought the vineyard. So you just, and why were they buying a vineyard? They, the because, guy's just insane, right? Alex liked, Alex liked wine and it was owned oh. by, a, it was owned by a, you know, pretty well-known hedge fund manager. And he liked being, you know, wanted to show him that he had, you know, money mm. and, you know, and financial chops too. And, mm. you know, and also it had an 8, 000, a beautiful 8,000 square foot Nantucket shingle style house in the middle of the vineyard. 
you know, so it was, it was the gorgeous assets out on the east end of Long Island on the North Walk in a town called Kutchog, just simply gorgeous. I mean, you know, the big, beautiful house and it's surrounded by 46 acres of vineyard. So this thing's just a huge, giant paper float, really. It's all it comes down to it, right? Yeah. Just and you notice that money was exiting the the company. Was it going to shell companies? Or was it going to the guy? Oh yeah, no, it was going to it was going a lot of different directions. On when I started asking questions, okay, you know what's this what's this transfer for? What's this for? Mm-hmm. I asked one of the attorneys at Southport who handed who sent me the bank statements for the account that was paying all the vineyards bills, and that I looked at those. On November 1st, 2012, $18.1 million came in, all right? The next morning, $3 million went out the side door to something called Southport Specialty Finance, which no one knows where that money went, mm-hmm. and $12 million went to $12.75 million ultimately went to the sellers of the vineyard, and, you know, so when I walked into the vineyard, it was, you know, owned free and clear, no mortgage, no nothing. Also was losing, you know, not only did he overpay by $5.75 million or almost a hundred percent overpayment, but it was losing money hand over fist. Wow. So they, so they massively overpaid for this asset for the privilege of losing, losing a shitload of money every wow. year, every year. Sounds so my, my, my job was to go in there and fix it. And when I fixed it, I, and, and I did fix it when it was still there. When when I left in two, in two thousand eighteen, it was profitable and making a lot more money, and it's still out there doing well. There you go. This would be a great movie because there's a lot of these great movies. I'm thinking of the cigarette movie where the the one guy goes undercover. I think it was and and stuff. So what makes you reach the point where you're like, hey, I'm not going down with this ship, or was that your thought process? I need to reach out to the FBI. That was exactly my thought process. You you kind of put your finger on it very well. There comes a time when you sit there and go, okay, I figured out that they had committed a felony, at least one that Mm -hmm. I knew. So I wound up going to a friend of mine who is a private investigator in New York. Mm -hmm. Uh, You may have heard of him. His name is Bo Deedle. He's also a a fairly famous actor. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, he arrested John Gotti and all those kind of, so he was, you know, oh, really? involved in all those guys. So I went to his private investigation firm and we went over it for a couple of weeks. They said, absolutely federal crime taking place. Believe it or not, they tried to call the, the, the U S attorney for the Southern district of Manhattan. They waved them off, you know, and said, listen, you know, we, we don't want this case. And that's when they sat there and said, they looked at me and they said, this is, this has to be a federal case run out of Washington. Wow. So next, the next step in that journey is, okay, how do I get to them? How do I find out who's running this show, this, this criminal mm-hmm. investigation? If there is a criminal investigation, I just still don't know if there is or not. Oh, okay. I, we hire Bo Deedle recommends a, an attorney in New Jersey, Michael Weinstein, who becomes as close to a brother as I've ever had. I've got, a, I do have a brother, but Michael's my second brother. Mm-hmm. And Michael is a criminal defense attorney. Mm-hmm. So here I am, by the way, I haven't done anything wrong and I'm hiring a criminal defense attorney. <laughs> yeah. you, you know, so, I mean, you know, there's, you start to, you know, this is where the road starts to go apart and you start to realize that this is a crazy, 
this what's going on is crazy. Yeah. So this is Michael, bit, might be life changing. I mean, yeah, pretty much was. Now, when you reach um, out to the FBI, I think that that's you know that's got to be like you know you know because the FBI is going to check you out too, right? Because they want to. Oh, they, oh, they did. They you did. Know. They they. Uh, my understanding of when you reach out to them is, you know, they're going to do their due diligence on you and try and figure out, you know, if the yeah. story is right, if they're getting, you know, a bum lead or whatever. I, I'll, I'll, I'll get into that because it's actually kind of funny. The first, yeah. the first meeting, you know, Michael is, you know, he's a pretty smooth, silver tongued criminal defense attorney. He's used to seeing his clients in handcuffs, you know, and, and you know, you can't <laughs> ruffle his feathers too much. All right. Yeah. But he's also a former U.S. attorney in, or assistant U.S. attorney in Washington D.C. So uh -huh. he's he he's, he understands the pipeline in there. Yeah. So I'm sitting there, and this is a moment I'll never forget. I'm in my car. I'm about because I live south of Boston. The only way to get out to Long Island every week is through a ferry that between New London and Orient Point, Long Island. So I'm about to get on the ferry to come home on a Thursday. Phone rings. It's Michael Weinstein. You know, hey, Michael. And, you know, Mr. Smooth and Sleek in Urbane suddenly goes, holy shit. He goes, are you sitting down? I said, I'm in my car. You know, I'm driving. And, and he goes, I just got off the phone. There is a, a whole task force in Maine Justice in Washington investigating Southport. It's SEC, oh. FBI, you know, and the CFTC. And it's being run out. It's being run by attorneys in, in D.C. And I just told him, I just got off the phone with the lead FBI agent. And he wants to talk to you. I'm like, okay, that's kind of what we're here for. So this is a good thing that you turn state's evidence or federal evidence. Well, I hadn't done it yet. Okay. So silly and stupid me, I am convinced that I hand these papers off to the FBI. I turn around, and walk away. My bit's done. I don't, I've never been involved in criminal stuff before. I don't know how that works. Yeah. Yeah. Weinstein sits there and goes, Richard, they have one question for you. And I said, what's that? Will you wear a wire? And I never saw that coming, Chris. Never, really? so never was... contemplated it. Nothing. Wow. Completely caught me off guard. You know, I get up and <laughs> there's actually a bar on the, on these ferries. And I sat there and I had a drink and I was thinking about it. And I'm like, oh, God, I'm going to go home. And now I've got to do the one thing I hadn't really done yet. I hadn't told my wife about all this crazy stuff. I was just going to ask <laughs> as the next question. Were you married? And what would your wife think? Yeah, married married with two, you know, two sons. One was in high school and, you know, getting yeah. ready to go to college. And, you know, and frankly, I wanted to keep the job because it paid really well. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm no you know, angel. I mean, it paid really well. You know, being a CEO of this little company, once we got it fixed, life was good. So we set up a meeting to go and meet with the FBI. Now, anybody who knows me know that when I get nervous, I get like the flop sweats, you know, for like for like 10 minutes before I'm in a meeting. It seems like that. It's embarrassing as hell, but I can't help it. Well, I mean, uh, this is this is a big deal, man. You're going, oh. you're walking. I mean, the FBI is, we've had FBI agents on. It's It's a big deal. You know. Oh, yeah. they. I mean, the meeting's at 1 o'clock. Michael Weinstein says, get to my office at 1230. And for half an hour, he's telling me, you haven't done anything wrong. They're on your side. And he's handing me glasses of ice water to get me to stop. <laughs> <laughs> you know, which somehow I figured he had done before being a criminal defense attorney. Uh -huh. You know, at the stroke of 1 o'clock, 
In walks two FBI agents and a guy from the Securities Exchange Committee, the Commission uh, Criminal Investigation Division, and we start the interview. And, you know, the first thing they do, they pull out their badges and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, by, you know, understand by this point, I've got bank records. I've got QuickBook files that I put together. You know, I've mm-hmm. got everything. I've, you know, I've got it all lined up. I know which laws that I think they've broken at the time, but I don't, you know, if Bo Deedle had said yes, Mike Weinstein had said yes, but I hadn't heard anybody on the prosecution side or anybody on the side of law enforcement sit there and say, yeah, this is a crime. Wow. So we go through the, you know, we spend about, we actually spend about four hours and the first two hours they're talking, they're asking me questions. I'm showing them the evidence that I had. And by the way, I'm not nervous. I've stopped perspiring, you know? So So, we're sitting there, you know, then they come through, they, they get up and they walk out. They say, we're going to be come back in a minute. And they had slipped a piece of paper over to Michael Weinstein to look at it, to look at. And it was, you know, what's called a proffer letter. Yeah. But it has, but it has been listed as the defendant, and I'm going. I'm not. I'm not signing that. I'm not a defendant. I'm not a target in this. You know. Then I'm going. Am I? And I start sweating again. You know. <laughs> I mean, they they kind of sweep up everybody when they do. A- and, and you want to know something, Chris? That was part of my. That was part of my driving fear the whole long, the yeah. whole time long. I didn't want to be on the wrong side of this. Yeah. You know, if you're because if you're on the right it was side, going, yeah. it was going to go bad. You're just going to pick up everybody and and yeah. Sit. And and just to fall back to something, what what did you do? You want to tell us what your wife thought, or do you want to reserve that for people to read the book? No, I'll tell you. She is a very, <laughs> she's pretty amazing. She looks at me, and and she's you know she's seen me you know be in pretty tough corporate situations before, mm-hmm. and she looks at me and she says, "I just want to know, do you know what you're doing?" And I'm like, "Absolutely," you know. Bullface lie. I had the faintest idea what I was doing. <laughs> it's not like you'd ever been, you know, a witness wire for yeah, the FBI yeah, before. Yeah. And then she goes, I'm not going to tell you, I'm not going to say no because I can tell you've already made up your mind. And I went, I have. And she goes, just be careful. Yeah. You know, just be you careful. You have to worry about your family and kids. I mean, I, oh, I yeah. mean, at least it's not the mob, but, you know, anybody can do anything if you threaten their. There is that, you know, there is that, you know, kind of fear in the background, but you know, you you, you deal with that. Mm -hmm. Um, And you know, and honestly, I came to the conclusion, and you know, this may—I hope this doesn't come home to bite me. I came to the conclusion that these aren't the kind of guys who, you know, show up at your door with a shotgun. Yeah. Yeah. You know. (laughs) So I mean, and and I and two have gotten out of prison. Obviously, Alex Burns, the mastermind, killed himself. One gets out of prison in a few months, and I just don't think. That that's the case. That's going to be the case. Yeah. These are these are these aren't bad people. They just got greedy and, and said, you know, the heck with the rules. Yeah. Nobody will, and they and they did the thing that happens so often. I've seen so many times working in finance. They said nobody will know. We, <laughs> they really said that. Kind of, oh God, yeah. Huh. Wow. I've heard that. I've heard that a thousand times in in finance. And reading nobody the, will know if we'll cut this rule. And reading the justice.gov's website on this, their 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 announcements of the rest and stuff. I guess they'd stolen so much money, the insurance company wasn't able to pay the policy holder claim. So there you start really having some real fraud and, and it starts hurting people's lives. It does hurt people's lives. As a matter of fact, that's mm-hmm. what the lead FBI agent told me the first time we met. You know, one of the things he said was, you know, insurance fraud isn't a victimless crime. He said, you know, what happens is you've got people who have paid their monthly premiums for years and years and years. Now they've got to make a claim. The insurance company has no money. So who has to make up for that? The individual Mm -hmm. states. 
this, yeah. you know, individual states have to pay those insurance claims. Yeah. Interestingly enough, this fraud, again, it turned out to be $350 million, but it was also in affected 39 states. Yeah. So I want to leave something in the, you know, a lot of this in the book so we can just entice people to do it. But what did you decide on the proffer agreement? Because I know the proffer agreement, you have to, you have to, you, you have to tell any and all crimes you may have committed or any sort of activities you may have done that may have been bad. I mean, you have to, you have to flush out your whole life because they, you do. You. Yeah. You do. And, you know, I had, I was very sure I had done nothing. With respect to all of this, I mean, you know, I've I've been in the securities business, in the corporate finance business for, you know, that's mm -hmm. you know, part of being in the workouts and turnaround business, you know, and, you know, I, I have I have probably been close to things that were, if not criminal, then criminal, then civil liabilities, you know, yeah. a dozen times. But I've always managed to keep myself out of it. And, you know, one of the things, you know, and I talked. I talk to my kids about this, mm -hmm. uh, my two sons. Now I'll sit there and say, you know, here's the thing. When you get in these situations, the best thing I got to tell you is stick to your principles, but you got to understand your principles are expensive. Yeah. Most people will just put their head down, say, I don't, I see nothing, you know, to do the Sergeant Schultz thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I see nothing. I hear nothing. I, you know, I say nothing. And, you know, but when you do something, you got to understand that there's going to be a cost to you. Mm -hmm. And and there was, you know, obviously for me, I was out of work for three years after all this ended. Yeah. Sometimes doing the right thing is harder. It's expensive. Than, oh. But it, it <laughs> looks like from the SEC filing, the co-owners were supporting him and they knew shit was going on and they were just all like, hey, make some money. And as you said, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah. I, you know, I, so I decided that, you know, you know, my father was in, you know, worked on Wall Street. My maternal grandfather worked on Wall Street. You know, none of them had ever gotten trouble in trouble. I didn't want to be the first. And, you know, and it's, I wanted my father, who was still alive back then, you know, I wanted my father to be proud of me. I want my kids to be proud of me. I want my wife to sit there and say, yeah, you're not so bad. You know, mm -hmm. you know, so you wind up putting yourself in those kind of sticky situations. There you go. And now you got a book out of it. So I do. I do. Kind of all, kind of all works out in the end. Hopefully, a movie because these usually make great movies of corporate espionage. From your lips to God's ears, and you know, to Spielberg's <laughs> Spielberg's phone. Um, there you go. Let's get know, Michael but, Douglas in here. I mean, so very yeah, well Swedish. Gordon, Gordon uh, Gecko, come on. Gordon Gecko, yeah. There you go. But uh, yeah, so yeah, and people love these movies, especially with FBI and wires and intrigue and, you know, all that stuff. It, you go through this whole journey that probably not a lot of people get to do. And you tell the story in the book of, of what it's like to, you know, wear a wire and, you know, I mean, that's gotta be just a weird thing wearing a wire, no matter, I mean, even if you're not meeting with John Gotti, you it's know, pretty surreal. yeah. And you, what, what, what does it feel like? Or what's the mindset? If you um, a little bit of that, you know, it's first of all, let me just say it's not a wire. It's not it's not what you see in mob movies and things like that. You know, it could be a tie class, but it could be, you know, it, it could be a number of different things. Oh, really? Uh, you'll never know. Could it could be a belt buckle. So you don't rip open someone's shirt and they got a whole mess of I mean, okay. So I'm sitting there, I'm sitting there at that first meeting and you know, after I agree to wear the wire, then all of a sudden they're teaching me, you know, they, they take my phone, they're plugging in all their direct, you know, their their direct dial numbers and if you oh. need this, you know, you know, if you, anything ever happens. We'll get somebody near you know to you right away. And finally, they said, "Do you have any questions?" 
and I'm, I, I feel like an idiot for this one, but I'm going to share it. And I look at them and I say, do they have to shave your chest to put a wire on? <laughs> and, and everybody breaks up laughing, saying, it's yeah. not like the movies. And I'm like, oh, really? Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Oh, All right. I shouldn't, have, I shouldn't have said that, you know. <laughs> I should have thought before I said that one. I'm going to go be a, a, a federal witness if I don't have to shave my stuff. I, that, that's just where <laughs> I drew the line on my integrity. No, that's kidding. But, <laughs> yeah. So you, you go through this whole series. Imagine you had to appear in court and testify. Against nope, never did. Because oh. they all pled they all pled, oh, guilty. they all pled guilty. There you go. Well, that makes it easier. And and then the the, the finally the, the lead bad guy offs himself. So makes it a little bit easier to round about the book and close it up yeah he had actually disappeared and checked oh, really? out of the whole of the whole place did uh, he run off or did he, did he yeah he, well he checked himself into into the psychiatric ward at bellevue hospital oh, in okay. the beginning of february 2014 so just 10 years ago you say that was um, a bad thing i've been there every week <laughs> yeah, I had a I had a cousin who was a nurse there, and you know she told great stories. Was her anyway, name Miss Ratchet? No, I'm just yeah. kidding. I had to do it. One flew over the cuckoo's nest joke. <laughs> but you know, so he did that. Then he but then he went into rehab in a very fancy rehab place in Connecticut where his mother lived. Um, it only works for people who do drugs that are movie stars, doesn't it? It doesn't yeah, work when you well, off three fifty million. I think that, I think it's but he had, he had he had. He had access to all that money, and you know he squirreled a lot of it away. So uh. then he, he moves down to Charleston, South Carolina, all right, and he starts up all over again. Now I talked to a lot of oh, in the course of writing the book. I talked to some of the people that he made friends with down there, and I said, "So how did you meet Alex?" And they said, well, "I met him at a card game." Now at this point, Alex would have been twenty-eight, twenty-seven, mm. and you know it's a bunch of you know guys in their forties. 50s sitting there playing cards and you know they say well, that's interesting alex you know well, what, what do you do for a living and burns sat there and said i'm a retired hedge fund manager oh, from new york retired didn't say didn't say anything you know just and he started all over again he wow. started swindling people wow some of the you know was a snake doesn't change his colors there you go yeah yeah what do you hope people take away from your book a couple of things. One, I hope they decide to buy it. <laughs> you know, that's my that, that's my that's my primary. But you know, no, actually, you know, just what I tell my kids. You know, when you're confronted with something that's really bad, mm -hmm. and you know, stealing three hundred fifty million dollars, I believe qualifies as really bad. When you're confronted with something that's really bad, and you are forced to make a decision. Mm -hmm. You're not, you're, you're never going to regret doing the right thing, oh. you know, and it's kind of that, you know, in the cartoons from the sixties and the seventies where they mm -hmm. had the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the old shoulder, you know, going steal it, you know, and you know, and the, the angel going, don't you dare, don't touch it. Mm -hmm. you know, side, side with the angel. You're going to feel better in the long run. There you go. I know that there's, I know that there's some people who've done whistleblower stuff on the government and yeah. they've lost everything they've taken. They, they've, you know, sometimes it's been on the wrong side. I think of a couple major whistleblowers and, but you're able to live with yourself. But, you know, the other, the other thing is if you, if you listen to the devil on your shoulder and said, ah, oh, the money's good, it's a good job, you know, you might lose income for three years, you know, there's, you know, just, 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 but turn a blind eye. You would have probably been rolled up in the thing once the FBI oh, yeah. showed up and raided the place. Yeah. 
I mean, I probably would. I probably would. The worst to do, anyways. Yeah, I was, I was, I was managing, you know, one of the Mm -hmm. one of the accounts Mm -hmm. through which a lot of the money came in and went out, you know, for unintended purposes. Yeah, so it was, it was quite the, uh, quite the journey. Would I do it again? I'm not sure. You know, let me go back on my own, on my own, you know, advice. I, I would. I would, I would help, but I'm not sure I would go through and do the covert stuff. You know, the whistleblower thing, uh, maybe it's just me. I had, you know, I, I have a little bit of an issue with this whole whistleblower thing because, you know, there's a, a small community of people who are trying to make money off of the people who take the risk and put their, you know, their lives and their livelihoods in jeopardy. And in many cases, not mine, but in many cases, their lives in jeopardy. And, you know, they'll sit there and, you know, praise you, you know, day in and day out, you know, to the highest, you know, order and they will, but they're really only just trying to get a piece of the reward. Huh. Is that the attorneys involved or is there a whistleblower Uh, um, reward system or something? Yeah, there's a whistleblower reward system. The FBI has, has one. Oh, that's uh, right. Yeah. Yeah. The, the SEC has a big one, you know, and, and, you know, everybody reads about, you know, people getting these $150 million rewards, that's really, really rare. And it has to be money that they've taken recovered? back, that they've recovered. Uh, they'll give you a percentage of that. Of doesn't sound recovered. like they're going to recover much of this. since the they didn't recover, they, Yeah, they, they didn't recover flow. shit on, in the South Borderline thing. Big paper you know? flow. Yeah, they, you know, they had a, a lot of losses. I mean, these guys were taking the money and, you know, doing the private jet thing, which, why is it all these guys when they sit there and... You know, rip off. You know, do a big rip off. They all start flying private jets out of nowhere. You know, it's amazing. Kinda, you got to keep the look at the appearances. That's part of the I scam. Guess. I That's guess part of the it's part of the grift. You know. Yeah. Or, yeah. What was that movie? The great movie in the nineties or whatever. The Grifters. You ever see that movie? Oh God, yeah. There was yeah. Actually, yeah. it went back to in the seventies with yeah. Angelica Huston and uh, I forget who else. But you know, yeah, that was yeah. a great movie. Yeah. And, and yeah, you're right. There was the original one before that, huh? But the scene where he brings the guy into the Texas stock firm, and he they're putting on the show with the great looking mm-hmm. firm, and you know he goes to the door. I'll never forget. He goes to the door and he opens it. And he's like, "Come here, see these stock computers." And you know, it's in you know behind the door is just an empty office, and it's <laughs> just the you know the putting on of airs and and all the stuff that goes into it. You know. Southport Lane was a really interesting place. They, they actually gave it some thought ahead of time. Maybe they were actually going to try to be a real firm. First time I walked in, now again, as I said, my father was on, worked on Wall Street. My grandfather worked on Wall Street. I've been in a lot of Wall Street firms growing up, and you know, and and you know, so they all kind of have a certain similar air to them, decorative, decorative style, and you know, and you know, there tends to be the real quiet part. Then there's the trading floor, which is noisy. Southport Lane had a gorgeous office. On the wall were framed old stock certificates, and it was made to look like old money. And they had a trading floor down the middle of the, and it's all, they had a whole floor, three fifty Madison Avenue in in New York, which is in which is prime real estate in Midtown. So I mean, they 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 made it look as if they were old money. Yeah, I, it's it's always keeping appearances because I mean. Yeah. The way, you know, you fake, you got money, you know, we live in this real world, a really weird world, especially with Instagram, I think helped create some of it, but you know, you, you can go, you can go do this thing for like, I think it's like a hundred bucks or 150 bucks in LA and you can go down and have your picture taken in a, in a staged private jet. 
And it you looks know, I've wondered funny. about that. Yeah, yeah. I've, I've wondered about that yeah. when you see all that. You know, you said they go, he can't be making that. <laughs> yeah, he can't. He can't be making that at all. And uh, yeah, that's that's really wild. Let let's give people a .com. Where can people find you on the interwebs and get to know you better? At www.rdbailey.com. There you go. There you go. And uh, thank you, Richard, for coming on the show. This has been really fun and interesting. I'm intrigued. I, I love to see it in a movie. You know, there's a, you read the reviews. There's a lot of people who say that, but Definitely. let's hope. Let's hope. Let's hope. There you go. Thanks to my audience for tuning in. Order up where refined books are sold. Pirate Cove, an insider's account of the infamous Southport Lane scandal available or fine books are sold go to goodreads.com for just chris foss linkedin.com for just chris foss chris foss one on the TikTokity, and chris foss facebook.com be sure to support the show share it with your friends and neighbors and be good to each other stay safe we'll see you next time